from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and will be on the actress Frances Farmer and her tragic story. Frances Elena Farmer was born on September 19, 1913 in Seattle, Washington. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. In 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified, authorizing the federal government to impose and collect income taxes on all sources of income, not just some. The infamous Rosa Parks was born this year in Tuskegee, Alabama. The 13th Dalai Lama declared the independence of Tibet from Qing Dynasty China. Joseph Stalin was arrested this year by the Russian secret police and exiled to Siberia. The House of Romanov celebrated its 300th anniversary of its succession to the throne amidst an outpouring of monarchist sentiment in Russia. Woodrow Wilson became the 28th president of the U.S. King George I of Greece is assassinated after 50 years on the throne. He is succeeded by his son, Constantine I. A major industrial strike occurred in the black country of England, involving 25,000 workers and threatening preparations for World War I in naval and steel industries. The workers demanded 23 shillings minimum wage. Also in 1913, Adolf Hitler himself moved from Austria to Germany, The Parliament of South Africa passed the Natives' Land Act, limiting land ownership for blacks to black territories. Romania declared war on Bulgaria. The Treaty of Constantinople was signed in Istanbul between the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Bulgaria. Also in 1913, Italy returned the famous Mona Lisa painting to France. Other famous people born in 1913 include Richard Nixon, who would go on to eventually become the president of the U.S., 
at a baker, Gerald Ford, who would also go on to be a future president of the U.S., and celebrated actress Vivian Lee, who played Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. So this was the atmosphere that Frances was born into. So her parents were Ernest Melvin Farmer and Cora Lillian Van Ornum Farmer. Ernest himself was born in 1874 in Spring Valley, Minnesota. His father, John, had been born in 1823 in Burke, Vermont. Ernest's mother was Susan, his parents having been married in 1869. Now, John did have a previous marriage to a woman named Maria and had three children, but she died in 1866 at the age of 35. From what? Well, I couldn't find, but back in those days, it could have been from a number of things. So Ernest was the product of his father's second marriage, and he was one of five siblings from Susan, so eight siblings total. John had been a lawyer and Minnesota politician and a speaker of the Minnesota House of Representatives. He later served in the Senate and eventually was a judge for the 10th Judicial District. Now, Ernest himself would grow up and go on to law school to be a lawyer, just as his father had done. He met and married Lillian Van Ornum in 1906 in Pierce, Washington. Ernest was described by all sources as a good man with a pleasant personality. In other words, pleasant, quiet, good-natured, but his own grandson said that he could be a bit aloof emotionally. Otherwise, a pleasant man who was described as a moderately successful attorney. So Cora Lillian Van Ornum, who went by Lillian, was born in 1873 in Douglas, Oregon. Her father, Zacharias, had been born in 1828 in Asheville, New York, and had been pioneers who moved out west. He married Catherine Elizabeth Uli in 1849. Catherine's parents, John and Jemima Rowe, came from Waldwick, Wisconsin, from Truro, England. Together, Lillian's parents had a whopping 16 children, Lillian being number seven in line. Lillian grew up and married a man by the name of William Mitchell when she was around 23 years old, and the couple did have one daughter together. While I couldn't find out much about William, his death year is after Francis was born, so this indicates a divorce, but for what? I don't know, although I'm sure we're going to get an idea. It was said that Lillian was quite the headstrong woman with a volatile temper, so perhaps that led to her first marriage dissolving. But she married Ernest, and the couple had a daughter who unfortunately died from pneumonia while she was still a baby. They then went on to have Wesley, then Edith, and finally Francis, the baby of the family. And by all accounts, the first four years of Francis's life seemed relatively low-key and wonderful. There were no indications that she had anything but a positive infancy and toddlerhood. But when Frances was just four years old, her mother's overbearing, headstrong, and high-tempered attitude became too much. Lillian and Ernest ultimately separated. Now, sources say that from the age of four until she was about 11 years old, Lillian uprooted the children and moved a number of times around California, including moving in with her sister of Lillian's in Los Angeles. 
So in 1925, when Frances was 12, her mother had moved the family to Chino, California, and very shortly after decided that, quote, caring for the children was interfering with her ability to work, end quote. And so she left her children with her sister, a.k.a. their aunt. The aunt then drove the children north to Albany, Oregon, and it was there that they caught a train going to Seattle, Washington to live with Ernest, their father. About being sent back to live with her father, Frances said, quote, In certain days, that train trip represented the end of my dependent childhood. I began to understand that there were certain things one could expect from adults and others that one could not expect. Being shunted from one household to another was a new adjustment, a fresh confusion, and I groped for ways to compensate for the disorder. End quote. It was said that, to help her sort through her feelings of being a burden to her mother, having to be uprooted and move often, she began writing, and she had a talent for it. But a year after Lillian sent her children away, well, her house burned down, and she was forced to move back to Seattle. Ernest allowed Lillian to move back into the family home, and he did attempt to repair their marriage and get back together, but Lillian would not have it. When Frances was 16 years old, they finally officially divorced, and Lillian moved into a different home in Bremerton, Washington. Her children stayed with their father. So as a child, Frances was described as bookish, as she did love to read and learn, and also quite lonely, as she kept to herself. She also demonstrated a talent for performing, and her mother encouraged her talents with voice and piano lessons. She made her stage debut at age 14, appearing with her older sister Edith in a West Seattle Congregational Church operetta titled The Pirate's Daughter. Once Frances was in high school, she seemed to really blossom and was on the debate team and was described as a fantastic debater and highly gifted writer, also being in the Creative Writing Club. Frances contributed her short stories and poetry to the school's literary magazine and worked on the student newspaper. She also played volleyball and basketball and participated in student government in addition to maintaining grades that qualified her for membership to the Honor Society. So in 1931, when Frances was a senior in high school, she decided to write an essay called, quote, God Dies. The essay touches on her ideas about religion, which I will read in a separate recording if you want to listen. I'll link my second channel I'm putting together for just readings, old literature and storytelling in the notes. There's not much there now, but I will be adding to it a lot. That is where I'll put companion stories to these podcasts as well. But anyway, she entered her essay and won $100 from the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards, a writing contest sponsored by Scholastic Magazine. It was quite controversial and was an advanced attempt to reconcile her wish for, in her words, a superfather god with her observations of a chaotic and godless world. She would later say she was inspired some by the writings of philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. She said, quote, he expressed the same doubts, only he said it in German, God is dead. This I could understand. 
I was not to assume that there was no God, but I could find no evidence in my life that he existed or that he had ever shown any particular interest in me. I was not an atheist, but I was surely an agnostic, and by the time I was 16, I was well indoctrinated into this theory. End quote. So when I say that it was controversial, I mean it really was, and for 1931 especially. Needless to say, it caused an uproar. HistoryLink.org published an article on Francis saying, quote, Seattle newspapers reported the news with headlines such as, Seattle Girl Denies God and Wins Prize, end quote. Wire services picked up the stories and distributed them to papers around the country. In Seattle, local ministers pointed to Frances and her high school English teacher, Belle McKenzie, as evidence of, quote, rampant atheism in the public schools. Quote, if the young people of this city are going to hell, one Baptist minister reportedly told his congregation, Francis Farmer is surely leading them there, end quote. So regardless, some years later, Frances said the reaction to her essay was an important but sad turning point in her life. She said, quote, for the first time, I found how stupid people could be. It sort of made me feel alone in the world. The more people pointed at me in scorn, the more stubborn I got. And when they began calling me the bad girl of West Seattle High, I tried to live up to it, end quote. A woman ahead of her times, really. I mean, I feel pretty close to the same way about religion myself, and I still get a lot of flack about it, and it's 2023. So imagine this in 1931. But after graduating high school, she started college at the University of Washington. And this is a good spot to stop and reflect on her childhood. So Frances' paternal grandfather was a hardworking and determined man who was a lawyer and politician, and her father had become a lawyer himself. But between most sources, it seems that Ernest wasn't really very successful at it. So while Frances was born into a fairly predominant family, the farmers were not as, you know, financially stable as one would think. Lillian came from recent pioneers and was described across the board as a headstrong, stubborn woman who was pretty cantankerous, one of my favorite words. So we can infer, you know, a little bit about this dynamic. Lillian did work outside of the home when Ernest married her, and going into the marriage, one would think that he would have been aware of what her personality was like. But if she was a take-charge kind of woman, well, that might have been a point in her favor for him, considering he was a little wishy-washy, so to speak. But he bit off more than he could chew for sure, and with her personality, we could also assume that she wasn't terribly talented at hiding all of that from her own children. And so that begs the question, did the children possibly witness her belittling and fighting with their father? Well, the chances are pretty likely. And then Lillian left her husband, took the kids, and moved south to California. And it was said that she uprooted and moved the kids quite a few times before deciding that caring for the children was getting in the way of her career. So she dropped them off with her sister and left. Effectively, she abandoned her children. So let's take a look at that. 
An article written for the CPSDFoundation.org tackled the long-term effects of maternal abandonment. The article says, quote, People who have experienced abandonment might be more likely to have long-term mental health disorders, often based on the fear the abandonment will happen again in their adult relationships. Mood swings and anger issues later in life can often be traced to abandonment in infancy due to the lack of emotional and other support from parents. From the mental health conditions thought to be heavily influenced by abandonment include anxiety, depression, codependency, attachment anxiety, and even borderline personality disorder, end quote. And, you know, guys, we've talked many times about how very hard it is on children who are uprooted and moved several times because it leaves them always feeling like the odd child out. They have to start completely over at each new school or in each new neighborhood with the other children, trying to find their place in the pecking order and so on. And Frances was described as a child who kept to herself, was bookish and quite self-entertained. And it would seem that her method of coping with all of that was to write, to which she did have a talent for. And when Lillian's sister sent the children back to their father to take care of, it seemed that the children were happier, more at peace, and Frances really blossomed. She played sports, was involved in a few clubs, and her grades were so high that she qualified for the National Honor Society, which is no small feat. Lillian was forced to move back in with her husband and children for a time, but she hightailed it out of there as soon as she could, and she didn't seem to interrupt Frances's scholastic success, thank God. And, of course, she began performing small things for the public and showed a talent for that as well. I don't think that it's really a stretch to say that once Frances was settled back at home with her father and had the routine and familiarity of the sameness of every day, the predictable routine that all children truly need, well, this left her with a much greater capacity to broaden her world, relax her mind, put her defenses down for a bit, and she really came into her own. Children who can take for granted that they will be living in the same house with the same daily routines, the same dinner times, same neighbors, same classmates and peers, all of that, the more they are relaxed and happy enough to expand, mature, and grow. I cannot express the importance of this for children enough. And in high school, it seems pretty clear that she was a deep thinker and explored philosophy on her own, even taking a book from the page of Nietzsche and writing that incredible and very controversial essay that was so good. She won an award for it as well as garnering the media's attention. What a brave girl to write about such a taboo topic as being agnostic back nearly 100 years ago, and standing behind her statements with her head held high. It's inspirational, really. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
We have no instances of where she was abused or neglected on any level from any sources that I've found. I'm quite sure she was disciplined like all other children were then, but not any worse. Would she have felt some trauma from her mother seeming to act as though the children were a burden to her, holding her back from doing what she wanted to do? Most likely. I'm one to know exactly how that feels for sure. But again, it would appear that going back to live with her father was exactly the secure environment she needed to really blossom. So let's get back into the story. It was during college that Frances decided to major in journalism, but she pretty quickly changed her major to drama, and she worked to pay her way through college. She worked, working in a movie theater, being a waitress, working in a factory, and tutoring other students. No one could say anything negative about her work ethic. Her sophomore year of college is when she really began to dive right into performing in the theater. She starred in numerous University of Washington plays, including Helen of Troy, Everyman, and Uncle Vanya. In late 1934, she starred in her college's production of Alien Corn, sounds kind of weird, which earned her favorable reviews in local press. Frances had the same sense of destiny. She later wrote, quote, I was eaten alive with ambition. I was going to the top and no one could stand in my way. End quote. She desperately wanted to move to New York and work on Broadway, but her family just didn't have the money to send her, so she hunkered down and thought about what she could do to get there. In March 1935, she won a trip to the Soviet Union by selling subscriptions for The Voice of Action, a leftist newspaper in Seattle. The prize included a round-trip bus ticket from Seattle to New York with passage by steamership to Moscow from there. Lillian was a very far-right woman who was absolutely incensed that her daughter was willing to go to the communist country. Her mother ranted that the college professors had filled her daughter's head with propaganda and had negatively influenced her daughter. But it wasn't just her mother who was horrified. Civic leaders also denounced the trip as a Bolshevik propaganda ploy. A group who had planned a banquet honoring Francis canceled the event, but she would later say that she had absolutely no interest in communism, that she had just wanted to study Russian theater, which was world-renowned. She made a statement saying, quote, I'm sorry Mother is objecting to the trip, but it is a splendid chance to further my dramatic career, end quote. And really, her ultimate goal was just to get to New York as she had originally wanted. So it really wasn't, there was no need for it to get political. <clears throat> so she graduated in 1935 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in drama and began her journey to the Soviet Union. It was said her father had put $20 in her purse for her to find, which would have been a little over $400 today. She went to Moscow as planned, but when she returned and landed back in New York, she cashed in her return bus ticket home for $25, which would have been over $500 today. She rented a room and began making the rounds of casting offices. Frances met a talent agent who got her in touch with the Paramount Pictures talent scout, who scheduled her for some screen tests on her 22nd birthday. She was signed to a seven-year contract with Paramount, and after this, 
she moved to Los Angeles to begin working. Now, Frances immediately began making kind of lower-budget movies, but when she started a movie with Bing Crosby titled Rhythm on the Range, she became a very popular celebrity nearly overnight, as can happen in Hollywood. And as her popularity skyrocketed, the executives told her it was time to quit being so introverted. Quit being such a homebody and get out there and act like a rich and famous movie star. And she was very grateful for the fantastic paycheck that comes with being a movie star. But she sincerely wanted no part in the drama of being a Hollywood starlet. She always believed that movies were, you know, okay work, but it wasn't legitimate like the theater was, at least to her. But Frances did give in a little begrudgingly posing for all of the glamour photos the studio demanded of her, looking sleek and sexy as was expected of her. But in her own time, she dressed as she damn well pleased and refused to change her name when they begged her to. She worked with vocal coaches because her voice was a tad lower than most women in the industry, you know, all the things. So we are beginning to see that perhaps she inherited some of her mother's stubbornness, which was probably a good thing for her during this time in her life. But they did basically stay on her ass about, you know, dating other popular actors and being about town, so to speak. So it is speculated that in order to put a stop to the constant harassment about it, she impulsively married another up-and-coming actor who went by the name of Life Erickson after the Viking. The marriage lasted all of a year, but within that year, she had made four more movies. The last of what many critics regarded as her best film, Come and Get It. The movie, based on the book, had Frances performing two roles as a world-weary cabaret singer and her virginal daughter, so she played both characters. Photoplay magazine called her performance in this movie, quote, sensationally brilliant. Her male co-star, in his later years, said that she was the best actress he had ever worked with, and a gossip columnist predicted that she would be the next Greta Garbo. Now that is big. If you don't know who Greta Garbo is, go have a looky-loo. But another male co-star said about Francis, quote, the nicest thing I can say about Frances Farmer is that she is unbearable, end quote. And some of the press were less than happy with her because, you know, she did try to avoid reporters and paparazzi, and they started stating she was cold and aloof. And she was still fighting those in control about not promoting her as nothing more than a sex symbol. She truly wanted to be taken seriously as an actor. So then she began being labeled as difficult, as I'm sure you can all imagine. But she continued to take roles and make movies. So in 1937, 25-year-old Frances decided to head back to New York to be on the live stage, and she was offered a great role in a play that was met with success, having a total of 248 performances. Can you believe that? That is amazing. So during this time, she and the playwright of her production, Clifford Odets, began quite the scandalous and torrid affair. However, Clifford was married to another actress, and his wife had been overseas for a time. 
Their tempestuous and emotionally devastating affair ended suddenly when Clifford sent her a note that read, quote, My wife returns from Europe today, and I feel it best for us never to see each other again. End quote. Oh, she got ghosted by paper text. <laughs> but, you know, this would be a turning point for Francis, who now began drinking heavily. In 1938, her agent, who had arranged the initial screen test for Paramount, sued her for $75,000, which would be over $1.5 million today, in back, quote, manager's fees, might I add. But she won her case. But this was another pretty big complication that just added to her stress. Also this year, she began production on a movie co-starring her own husband when she discovered she was pregnant. Life was very upset about the pregnancy because he thought it would be the end of his career, and he urged her to get an abortion. She finally gave in, and the surgery was performed, but it left her unable to ever have children again. She said she continued to make movies, but she had also played a part on Broadway the next year, but the critics were very harsh, as they often are, and this broke her heart terribly. But she was hired for another Broadway play, but at this point, you know, she was binge drinking to self-medicate for what is thought to be depression, and finally was basically forced to quit and was labeled as unprofessional. She tucked tail, returned to Los Angeles, and continued starring in movies, though they were low budget and didn't make much money at the box office. One movie in 1942, she really only played a small supporting role. So always fighting the stigmas of being a beauty in Hollywood, she fought with Paramount until they finally suspended her. She would later go on to say that she could feel herself slipping away. To add to her drinking, she began taking amphetamines, which we all know were intensely pushed on actresses back in those days, you know, to keep that slim figure... And then after her husband began an affair with another actress, the two divorced. He married his mistress literally the next day. And then later that same year, Francis was ultimately arrested for driving drunk while having the car's headlights on during a World War II wartime blackout. And it was said that she was quite verbally belligerent to the officers. She was fined $500, which would be just under 10000 today, and the judge forbade her from drinking. She paid only half of the fine, then traveled to Mexico to work on a film, but quit after only two weeks. She went home to her rented home, only to find that her family had effectively moved her out and put her up in a hotel in Hollywood because they said she was running out of money. In early 1943, she walked onto set one day to begin working on another film when... And again, this was the very first day, she slapped her hairdresser, who fell and suffered a dislocated jaw. That must have been some slap. So, of course, the hairdresser called the police, who found an open warrant out on Francis for not finishing paying her fine. And she was arrested at her hotel later that night. And it was said she was sleeping drunk and was drug out naked, booked on charges of assault and violation of probation. According to a newspaper from the day, Frances admitted she had been drinking, quote, everything I could get my hands on, including Benzedrine. 
the judge sentenced her to 180 days in jail. Her extreme behavior was the stuff of legends during that court appearance, in that she, quote, floored a matron, bruised an officer, and suffered some rufflement on her own part, end quote, when police refused to let her use a telephone after her sentencing. They then had to remove her shoes as they carried her off to her cell in order to prevent injury as she was kicking at them. And if you want to see, there's a very famous photo of her being carried out of the courtroom, and she does look mighty rough. Her eyes were allegedly quite bloodshot, her blonde hair all knotted and matted, and her suit wrinkled. She was described as defiant and sarcastic. So Francis's older brother's wife had been in the courtroom and had witnessed the absolute shit show that it had been, and it was decided by the family that, you know, perhaps being in a psychiatric institution would be better for Francis than prison. And so, somehow, they were able to get her station changed and had her committed to California's Kimball Sanitarium now. According to the Historical Society of Crescenta Valley, Quote, the valley had become a mecca for health seekers and several hospitals, rest homes, and sanitariums had cropped up, including some, like Kimball Sanitarium, that treated mental illness. Expansion plans for Kimball's facility were fought down by residents uncomfortable with the valley's growing reputation as the place where the nuts are, I'm doing air quotes, Kimball Sanitarium was possibly the sanitarium that Bella Lugosi, the guy who played the super old-school Dracula, used to fight his morphine addiction as portrayed in the film Ed Woods. This is also the sanitarium where actress Frances Farmer was first committed for insulin shock therapy. End quote. That's right, folks. After she was admitted, she was evaluated and diagnosed as having manic depressive episodes, and then later it was changed to paranoid schizophrenia. And she was, in fact, given insulin shock therapy, which was a standard practice then, but it was a horrific experience. Now, insulin shock therapy, also called insulin coma therapy, is a form of psychiatric treatment in which patients were given increasingly large doses of insulin in order to induce hypoglycemia, or low blood glucose, or low blood sugar as it's commonly called, and then coma. This treatment pattern was repeated six days a week over the course of months, and in some instances a year or more with steady increases of insulin dose to produce deeper states of coma. Some patients experienced as many as 50 or 60 episodes of unconsciousness over the duration of therapy. Various effects were experienced by patients during and after insulin shock therapy. According to Britannica, Immediately following injection, patients exhibited a range of symptoms, including paleness, sweating, and restlessness, followed by deep sleep, and finally, coma. Patients were at high risk of very low blood sugar and even seizures when not receiving treatment, necessitating constant monitoring by nursing staff and, following completion of the full course of therapy, patients were oftentimes left obese owing to the effects of the repeated glucose injections. 
Many patients also developed brain damage, which sometimes was erroneously perceived by psychiatrists as an improvement in their mental condition. Treatment also sometimes resulted in death. Estimates of the fatality rate in insulin shock therapy vary from 1 to nearly 5%, so this treatment uh, was no joke. And let us not forget her mother, Lillian, right? So later, Lillian would say Francis was only just suffering from, quote, nervous exhaustion caused by, quote, consistently being cast as a professional harlot in motion pictures, end quote. And, you know, she might have been on to something there. But eventually her mother would blame her daughter's breakdown on international communism, of all things. And after nine months of this, she simply walked out of the institute one afternoon and traveled to her half-sister Rita's house over 20 miles or 32 kilometers away. She called Lillian to complain about how they had treated her at the sanitarium. So Lillian came from Seattle down to Los Angeles and escorted Francis back up to Seattle. But then her mother, who was awarded guardianship over Francis, filed a complaint in King County Superior Court asking that her daughter be designated, quote, an insane person and turned around and checked her into Western State Hospital. Mothers, am I right? So Francis would later write, quote, Mama and I had fought argued, threatened, and screamed until it had finally come down to a climax of two exhausted women sitting across from each other in a small, cluttered kitchen. We were enemies who had grown tired of pretending. End quote. She would spend most of the next six years in mental institutions for treatment of what was variously diagnosed as manic-depressive psychosis originally, to her having split personality, to schizophrenia with paranoid delusions, or simple depression. She was subjected to continuous electroshock therapy sessions two to three times a week, usually, she also stated in a later television show, quote, It was very much like anyone else's that it is admitted to a public institution. They don't have means for individual psychiatric care. There's only so many beds available. I stood in line with 15 or 20 girls like myself in the hospital for one reason or another. We received shots or hydrotherapy baths or electric shock treatment. This was supposed to relax the tensions and keep us quiet, which it did. I don't blame the hospital at all. I think that they did everything in their power to take care of the enormous number of people they had, but I really don't think it helped me much. End quote. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Frances claimed that she had been brutalized and mistreated in various and disturbing ways, including being forced to eat her own feces and act as a sex slave for male doctors and orderlies. 
She recounted her stay in the state asylum as unbearable terror, stating, quote, I was raped by orderlies, gnawed on by rats and poisoned by tainted food. I was chained in padded cells, strapped into straitjackets and half drowned in ice baths, end quote. So given these conditions of overcrowding and everything else we all know all too well, hospitals were naturally interested in anything that promised to help psychologically disabled people leave the institution and return to useful lives. And a more than effective procedure was the transorbital lobotomy. The procedure involved the insertion of a thin, ice-pick-like instrument under a patient's eyelid and into the frontal lobes of the brain, where it was used to sever nerves thought to cause severe emotional disturbances. It was developed by Dr. Walter J. Freeman, a prominent Washington, D.C. neurologist and psychiatrist, whose motto was, quote, "'Lobotomy gets them home.'" And he demonstrated this procedure in the very hospital that Francis was in. At some point, a photographer for a local Seattle newspaper took a photo of this demonstration, producing what has become the world's most famous lobotomy photograph. The image shows the doctor wielding his instrument on a comatose woman. The photographer later said that the woman in the photograph was Francis Farmer. Now... Her family denied that it was her in the photograph, but the likeness is at least there. Frances said she had heard women on her ward pleading for lobotomies because, quote, they had been told the operation would sever the little nerve that controls one's sense of grief, end quote. Sense of grief. But she too denied the rumor, so... I'll leave that for you to draw your own conclusions. Did she have a lobotomy? Did she not have one? I'm kind of 50-50. So it wasn't until 1950, when Frances was 37 years old, that she was paroled into the custody of her mother again. Reminds me of Ed Kemper, right? It's like the last person she should have been given to. But... Her mother lied to her and kept her under her thumb by indicating that she could be recommitted at any moment, that she had not been officially released, but Francis found out, albeit three years later, and put in an official request to end her mother's conservatorship, and side note, boy doesn't that sound familiar, but she won her freedom back. She didn't immediately return to Hollywood, though, and in fact, she went to work at a hotel sorting laundry in Seattle for a time, met and married a perfectly reasonable man who worked as a city utility laborer. The couple moved in with Lillian, who was reportedly becoming senile and needed assistance, and in around a year, Lillian had to be admitted to a nursing home while Frances' marriage began to crumble. Both of Frances's parents would be dead in under two years. In 1957, she moved back to California and took a job as a bookkeeper and secretary at a professional photography studio. She met another man who recognized her at a local bar, and they began dating. He wanted to see her make a full comeback into Hollywood, and the two married in 1958. She did perform and sing a bit on some TV shows, and she did make a small return to the stage 
in Pennsylvania and in a low-budget movie, but these did kind of work in her favor, because in 1958, she was given a talk show of sorts, and it was very well received. Oh, and then she promptly divorced husband number three at this time. So in 1964, she lost her show because of supposed drinking binges, but she continued to get work on the stage. At this point, she was now 51 years old. The next year, she was involved in a drunk driving accident where she became sarcastic, we'll say, with the officer and was promptly arrested. But she bailed out quickly enough, and then she went to perform the next night, and she was met with thunderous applause which caught her off guard. For the first time in her entire life, she felt she had finally been taken seriously as an actress and sort of lost her need to perform any longer. From then on, she really painted, wrote poetry, and during the 60s, she began writing an autobiography, and she completely gave up drinking. In the spring of 1970, Frances was diagnosed with throat cancer, believed to be caused by her years and years of heavy smoking, and she died only months later. She is buried in Fishers, Indiana. With the help of her friend, who was assisting her with her book, who finished it after her death, it is titled, quote, Will There Really Be a Morning? End quote. So... What do we think about the various diagnoses that she was given? We must remember that this was nearly 100 years ago, where I believe things were not as well understood as they are now. Do I think she had paranoid schizophrenia? Absolutely not. Manic depressive episodes, as it was called, that might be a bit closer to the mark. While I do believe the heavy drinking and prescription speed contributed to some of her mental health issues, it also feels like, because she was a headstrong woman in Hollywood that was making the companies a lot of money, that because she didn't want to conform and be turned into nothing more than a beautiful sex symbol, she wanted to actually be taken seriously, the constant stress and friction took its toll. And let's not forget that she also most likely suffered with some abandonment issues from her childhood. So for once in her life, perhaps her mother was right in that Frances was suffering from nervous exhaustion, as she put it. She took acting very seriously as an art form, and all of the behind-the-scenes hoobla about her wanting to dress more comfortably and living in a less glamorous house or driving an older car raised eyebrows, and she could not understand why that even freaking mattered. They wanted her to always be glamorous and date glamorous actors and be out on the town for the paparazzi to take photos of, flashing bulbs constantly in her face. She was expected to be poised and beautiful at all times, and she just wasn't about that. I can relate to that tremendously. Do I think she was seriously mentally ill? Or do I think people over-dramatized her decisions, wanting to label her as difficult in Hollywood? She was bullied, heartbroken, and bullied some more, although she made her own mistakes for sure. I think she most likely did have depression and probably anxiety, and the boozing, of course, added to the intensity, but it was also the cure for her, wasn't it? Do I think she deserved to be institutionalized for over seven years total because she just wouldn't conform? Absolutely fucking not. But she did need help. 
Her emotional outbursts did need to be seen about for sure. The amphetamines should have been stopped and the drinking addressed. Electroshock therapy, insulin therapy, a possible lobotomy? No. No. But, you know, that's just my opinion. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing or you can come join us at the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook. And I'm actually kind of running a contest over there or a giveaway. It's not a contest. Gross. It's a giveaway where once we reach 500 people, then I'm going to pick someone at completely random and I'm going to send you my favorite true crime book, hardcover, um, a t-shirt with the podcast thumbnail on it and some other little goodies. So come on over and join. I'm super active on Instagram and on the Facebook fan page if you want to converse with me and we talk about different cases. It's a lot of fun. But as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much yet again. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. <laughs>